This is Purple Radio on demand. <laughs> we know that's false, but why did he make Victor a ninja Why not? <laughs> Hello and welcome. This is Gone Too Far, a new podcast where we bring the highlights, the lowlights, the roars and the tears of modern football to your ears. In today's episode, we'll be whisking you off to Ibiza, Munich and the most glamorous destination of them all, Birmingham. We'll be reflecting on this week's Premier League action, discussing the FA Cup and the Copa del Rey, casting an eye on the Bundesliga title race and embracing all the palpitations the transfer window has to offer. My name, as far as I'm aware, is Luke Power, your host for this episode, and I'm delighted to be joined by three outstanding football experts. Firstly, we have Ariman Banerjee, who came up with the idea for this new show. Secondly, we have Joshua Nickel, who gave this show its beautiful name. And last but certainly not least, we have Ben Sharp, who has the misfortune of being an Arsenal fan. How are we, gents? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Good to go. So you're not the only Arsenal fan, of course, Ben. We do have AB. I was even that quiet, but uh, you've rumbled me now. Yeah, I'm very sorry about that. Um, and I suppose we might as well start in London and with Arsenal, because of course they got a 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge on Tuesday night. How do you assess the action, Ben? I know it's been three draws in a row, but the fact that the resolve that they showed to get back from what 1-0 down and being a man down shows uh, the uh, improvements Arteta is making is certainly coming into play. The fact Martinelli just epitomised that. If you looked at the way he was running and the make runs he was making, the the goal that he scored, it was all about hard work and team effort. And that, that I believe the results will only improve as the fitness of the squad improves. So I think overall it was a very good result for Arsenal considering they were a man down. And I personally would take a point at Stamford Bridge any day of the week regardless of whether we were a man down or not. So to get a point with a man down, just in my opinion, is almost like a win for Arsenal. Yeah, absolutely. And AB, you've been talking about, even though Arteta might have not got the best results at Arsenal so far with only two wins in his opening seven games, their performances have actually had some market improvement. Yeah, well, I think the first strength of Nate is that Arsenal have only got one point from their last seven visits to Stamford Bridge mm. before, uh, before last night. So from that perspective, it's, it's a very, very good point for Arsenal. I have to agree with Ben when he says he showed a real character and, and a spirit that I don't think Arsenal has shown in a number of years. Towards the last run of the Wenger era, it was always the criticism that Arsenal lacked yeah. a spine. They lost the back, they lost the backbone. And it certainly wasn't present under Unai Emery. And now Mikel Arteta has come in and he's, within, in a month, in a month and a half, he's given this squad an identity. He's unified an incredibly partisan, divided fan base. He's resolved a number of critical situations which had gone rotten under the Emery regime, things like Grand Shaka. Yeah. And he's implemented a style of football which, as Ben alluded to, the fitness levels of our players, certainly the Emery era, is not currently up to playing for 90 minutes, but it's improving. And with that, the results will come. The performances 
before Chelsea against Sheffield United, against Crystal Palace, were excellent for 50, 60 minutes before Arsenal tear off mm. and concede. So, you know, I think there's a lot of positivity to be taken from that. I don't think it was uh, against Bournemouth uh, in the in the FA Cup and Bournemouth, if you look at the situation there and now, I think they've got a dire situation. Yeah, well, I think Eddie Howard's got much bigger problems with the FA Cup to worry about. So if you look at it from that sense, um, it could be a really, really nice way to, um, to build a little bit of momentum going into a critical loss, last stage of the season. It's, it's quite ironic how Eddie Howe was touted as being the next Arsenal manager before Unai Emery, <laughs> and now he's in the situation yeah. that he is in with Bournemouth, so it is quite ironic in that sense. It'd also be ironic if Arsenal end up finishing in the bottom half and then in typical Arsenal fashion end up going and winning another FA Cup. <laughs> I don't know how you do it every time. Um, Josh, will bring you into it. I, I guess something that strikes me with Arsenal is, are they moving into a new area? You saw the likes of... Um, David Luiz, the foul, the red card. He's probably the least experienced, experienced player I've ever seen. He seems to make mistakes week after week. And then you look at the players like Martinelli getting on the score sheet, who's been an absolute revelation, plucked from the regional leagues of Brazil, and now he's a Premier League star with attention coming from miles around. Do you think that at Chelsea and Arsenal, there is a new revolution of younger players coming through? Yeah, and I think that's got a lot to do with the, the younger managers that are also at the club. Uh, bringing about their own style of play. Mm. I think Frank Lampard has been quite a shrewd appointment by Chelsea. Uh, obviously, he's not going to storm to a league title mm. straight away as, as other managers may have attempted to. But I, I really do think that his appointment, coupled with the fact that they've had a transfer ban, has really enabled them to, to shake up the way they play, to employ a more youthful, vibrant system. And we're seeing that with the likes of Tammy Abraham getting goals, Mason Mount performing well in the, in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and I think Arsenal, we're seeing something similar at the minute. Uh, obviously, the board have, have spent lots of money in the past, uh, Aubameyang, Ozil. Uh, they're, they're probably not likely to, to go out and spend all of that kind of money again, mm. given the results that they've had. So again, I think Arteta is a shrewd appointment. Uh, given the fact that he's worked so well with Pep Guardiola in the past, yeah. he's got that system, and he has actually improved the uh, the, the play of Arsenal. Yeah, AB. Yeah, to understand as well from a Chelsea perspective, I think this next month or so is going to be probably the biggest test of the season. But what is a very very young team mm. because they've taken one point to loss to a game that was had that loss to Newcastle before. Before they drew with Arsenal, a ten man Arsenal. But the next three games, they've got Leicester, Spurs, and Manchester United. And Tough. and and when you give them how tight it is now in that sort of top four battle, this is going to be a real, real test for them. Um, and it's actually, very, I, I don't know how it's going to go. It's, it's going to be very curious. But what I can say is that Lampard so far, and I had doubts about him when he first got the Chelsea job, I thought he did a decent job at Derby. I think I probably gave him a B plus, but I, I had yeah. doubts. But he's coming and he's done very, very well. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how they do this next month. Just out of curiosity, I'm just wondering, obviously we're in January at the moment, where would you say Arsenal need to strengthen? Because for me, centre-back has always been a problem position for Arsenal. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at David Luiz now suspended, and the fact that Mustafi was the other set, start <laughs> set terrible. And it just beggars belief that, <laughs> that those who are getting games for a team like Arsenal in the position that they want to be in, uh, yeah, well, definitely that's the obvious area, you know, 
Mustafi that was really Socrates is ahead of the very cool season. And it's all about bringing in. I've seen a lot of Arsenal fans say we need to bring in a big, you know, big money signing, a big centre back. It's it's about more than that. It's about creating strength and depth in that position and also have a hand in years because you know maybe maybe we bring in a big money signing if, and if you, but if he gets injured and we're back to playing David Luiz and Mustafi, what was the point in that really? Um, so it's, and and part of that, I think it's about you know maybe bringing another 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 central midfielder. Um, and just adding strength and depth because there is a good crop of players here. There's a good crop of young players. There is character. There is spirit, and it's about tightening those little areas that need tightening and filling that centre back problem because that that is really be costing us. You you do also have to remember that we have got William Saliba from Saint Etienne coming in yes. at, at the end of the summer. It looks like a really good young talent. But the, the issue is, I agree with that completely. With AB, is that you need a leader on the pitch now. I completely disagreed with you over that red card. I don't think it was a red. I think it was a cynical tackle, but also okay. correct tackle to make in the sense that I, I thought he was going to score. I thought um, the other centre-back had covered the goal, so I didn't believe it was the last man, but that's another debate for another day. But there needs to be some form of leadership on the pitch in terms of leading by example. There's, David Luiz is well known for giving it large in the dressing room, so to speak. And pumping the players up. I mean, before the home home game against Chelsea, which was about a couple of months ago, he got them all in the centre circle and started speaking to them all individually, one by one, at the Emirates. And that's all good and well. But Virgil Van Dijk is just a complete example of this. He leads by example, and that's what Arsenal need. They almost need some that experienced defender, not to coach the younger centre backs, but just to point out and say, move up a bit. Can you just uh, mark? Just a bit of intelligence, footballing IQ they need yeah. around the position. If you can I just add in one very quick yeah. thing. Uh, just in defence of David Luiz, uh, I think he had a terrible start result in Korea. But since Mikel Arteta has come in, he has largely done fine up until the Chelsea mm. game, which you would predominantly blame that red card on the staffy as well. So yes, just, yes. just to give it a little bit of balance. <laughs> yeah, perfect storm on the back. Right, so we'll move on. Um, to another team that somebody in the room supports. Josh, a local boy, we're in Durham. Newcastle aren't that far away to the north. And Newcastle were also part of a 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge, Goodison Park, against Everton. And um, thanks to some heroics from Florian Lejeune. Honestly, uh, Florian Lejeune has now scored more goals in two minutes than Joe Linton <laughs> has in the entire season <laughs> in the Premier League. And we spent £40 million on Joe Linton as a striker. It's, it was an absolutely crazy game. I mean, I, I must confess, I actually didn't see the goals as they went in, mm. our two goals. I switched off when it was 2-0 in about the 80th minute or yeah. something like that. I uh, certainly didn't watch the majority of the second half because Newcastle did not deserve the point based on their entire performance, but based on their result for the last five minutes. When you watch the last five minutes, certainly stoppage time back, Newcastle were very direct very good at getting in the face of Jordan Pickford. And I think because of that local connection that Pickford has as well to Newcastle, uh, being a Sunderland player and having a real hatred for the club, he tends to get a bit hot-headed when he plays mm. against Newcastle. And we saw that last season as well when Everton were 2-0 up and, and Newcastle went on to win the game 3-2. And he wasn't particularly very comfortable between the sticks then. And it, again, it was, it was his error... Um, from the, the corner kick, punching the ball backwards, that led to the ball coming back in. And Florian Lejeune scored in an unlikely bicycle kick. <laughs> it's a, one of the strangest moments of the season was him <laughs> yeah. getting up to score the bicycle kick, never mind the, the fact that we scored two in two minutes. Uh, and then the second goal, obviously, 
Uh, I don't know what Jordan Pickford's doing there either, just no. flapping about all over the place. Everton should have had that game. Mm. And Newcastle had no right to get a point out of that. Ben? Yeah, I mean, Newcastle, we talked at the start of the season about Steve Bruce wanting the same respect as Rafa Benitez. I ultimately have changed my view on him. I think he does deserve the respect. I mean, he's got more points than Rafa did at the stage of the season. Rafa did last season, I believe. He is in the best position in the table than Rafa was. Surely, we now owe him the respect that is due. And a point of Joel Linton, just a slight point of Joel Linton. I remember the first game when he was making his debut, I was watching it on Sky Sports, and they said, this guy's not a goal scorer. Why do you sign someone for £40 million <laughs> if they're not a goal scorer? AB, you uh, got an answer to that? Yeah, well, I, this is always criticism of Joe Linton. I watched him a lot at Hoffenheim last season, and he's not a goal scorer. The guys mm-hmm. from out and out centre-forward, he creates goals mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, you know, perhaps Roberto Firmino goes to Liverpool as well. And I think when Newcastle have already suffered, is, you know, while Liverpool have the likes of Salah and Mane, uh, Newcastle, we've, we've seen Alan struggles, we've seen uh, Sam Maximum struggles as well, just in front of goal. I think they're good players, but obviously they're struggling in front of goal. Um, and so Joe Linton was brought in to fix solution to which he was never the answer. He's the answer to a lot of things. I actually think he's a decent player. Certainly he was a qualified last season. Mm. But he's not the answer to goals going troubles, which is why I think you know Andy Carroll could, if he can stay fit, be quite quite a useful signing. Just another thing on Steve Bruce, I've got to agree with, with Ben in terms of the respect. If Steve Bruce's name was Sandro Brucio, <laughs> would and he was, you know, brought in from Italy or Spain and he was seen as this continental revolutionary manager. How much more respect would he be getting, do we think? I think because I, th- I think it'd be quite a lot more. I think it's the fact that there, there's a lot of history with, with Steve Bruce, obviously, mm. managing Sunderland. He doesn't tend to have a lot of, of loyalties he's played for and managed very various different uh, rival clubs. Um, and he, it's all, there's also the um, perception that, that Steve Bruce is one of these footballing dinosaurs, like like Sam Allardyce, mm. you know, like Mark Hughes, the, like the old breed of English... Uh, the old guy, British managers, yeah. and it didn't really smack of any ambition from from Mike Ashley to to hire Steve Bruce following from Rafa Benitez. I've always said that whoever followed Rafa Benitez would be absolutely slaughtered, and it would be the <laughs> toughest job ever. Newcastle's a poison chalice at the best of times, but I think a few extra doses were put in once Rafa Benitez walked away and went to China. But ultimately, Steve Bruce has done a decent job, and, and he does deserve a little bit more respect. Than, than he is currently getting from some supporters. And I'd say now the people that are criticising Steve Bruce are in the mi- minority of the fan base, uh, but it's all, always the most vocal people that, that, are, that are heard the most, which is unfortunate. And it's always the football Twitter is a very strange place yeah. and it never really reflects the views of, of a fan base. Yeah, sometimes you have to turn Twitter off if you're the manager. Um, it's an interesting debate, you know, you see sides like Brighton bringing in Graham Potter wanting this new style of football, but Steve Bruce, yeah, he's done an amazing job, even if it's a more direct, abrasive style. If he's getting the results, if he gets a top-half finish, it's an absolutely fantastic result. We'll move on to their opponents on Tuesday night, Everton, of course. Um, some very, very interesting things going on there. New manager, A, B, your hand shot straight up. you got something to say about it. Yeah, that? well, I think Carlo Ancelotti is now realising the task at Everton mm. is perhaps a lot bigger than yes. he initially may have thought when he took this job. Everton on the surface of it are a very attractive club to go to. They're not afraid to spend money. Um, you know, they're a big club. Uh, they've got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about Liverpool at the moment. And 
you know, Carl Ancelotti takes that job thinking maybe he can be the man to propel them back towards the top four where they think they should be. However, where the difficulty comes is this squad of players at the moment is so turgid, so lifeless at times. Mm. And as we saw at the end of the Newcastle game, just so prone to switching off at key moments. Yeah. You know, we saw it under DeMarco Silver Ray. So how many performances did we come away from thinking that was so, so dull? There is nothing to excite us in this Everton squad. And that's in spite of, you know, they're making signings from Barcelona. I think the one real positive that's, that's come in since he's arrived, Carl Angelotti, is the way he's working with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Yes. Um, we've seen he's worked with the likes of Ronaldo, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Rostovchenko over the course of his managerial career. So he knows how to coach a striker, he knows how to best strike, he's working the best strikers operate. And I think that's what he's trying to instill in Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And to all intents and purposes, it's working because he's now got 10, 10 goals a season. Mm. So, you know, there are positives. They have got a big name manager. But for everything, I think Everton fans do realise, and what the rest of the football world have to realise, is that there is a long, long way to go for this team before they can compete yeah. with the likes of even, you know, Wolves and, and Sheffield United, who are currently playing big in this on their parts. Yeah, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's definitely had a revival. Four goals in six games under Ancelotti. Ancelotti says that Dominic Calvert-Lewin deserves an England call. And of course, when you have the injury of Harry Kane, when you have Jamie Vardy in international retirement, you know, largely reluctant to return. Do you think that Calvert-Lewin, Ben, do you think Calvert-Lewin deserves a place in the England team or are there other strikers who are more worthy? I think he deserves a place in the England squad. Mm. There's a difference between being in the England squad and being in the England team. I fear he will become a Theo Walcott-type situation if the similar sort of thing with Mason Greenwood bringing along, bringing along a young player for the sake of giving them experience when I don't think realistically they're going to play. I mean, personally, I think if we're looking at players who are going to start in favour of those two, we're looking at Danny Ings. I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but Danny Ings is an experienced player. We're looking at Rashford if he wasn't injured. We're looking at... Would it be worth giving Jamie Vardy a call and asking him to come out? But he's injured. I think so. But not for too long. The yeah. uh, Brendan Rodgers had the glute problem, which he picked up um, in the last game. Sure, they keep him out for a week or two. Well, then, without doubt, they should try and get James Hyde to call up. But the difference is, Premier League players are incredibly stubborn. But they've got egos. They've got all the money in the world. They don't need an England call up. An England call up is no longer the same, has the same pedigree as it used to. Are you sure? Because we did get to a World Cup semi final, and we are. We're, you, you, you're sighing at the fact that that, that means it is. Oh, thank you, Siri. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, he's got some strong thoughts. Siri has some very strong thoughts about the World Cup semi-final. Um, but yeah, uh, the one thing that I do have to say about Jamie Vardy is that he'll be looking at his last stint in the England team and thinking, what's the point in me coming if they're not going to play a style of football that suits me playing mm. there? Because every time Jamie Vardy was in the England team, they weren't utilising his pace and his agility and his mobility. They weren't getting balls in behind. They never played Danny Drinkwater and Jamie Vardy on the same pitch when Leicester had just won the league. And that, I, I, I think, was ridiculous. That, that England never utilised the both of them that understood each other's games so well. So, so I think that, that'll be the one thing that Vardy will be thinking of when he, if he does get a call and if he is considering the, the England call up. I mean, in my opinion, even if Harry Kane was fit and Marcus Rashford was fit, I'd still want Jamie Vardy in my squad. And the one reason why I would is because 
when you get to those games, it's all Harry Kane is brilliant when you have 60% possession, mm. in my opinion, when you control the game. When you need a goal and you need, you don't have that much possession and you're having to play on the counter attack, Jamie Vardy fits that description absolutely perfect. That's the style of football he plays. Yes, Leicester have, to a certain degree, improved that, their possession stats this season, but even so, he thrives on those balls over the top, he thrives on those balls down the channel. And unless England, I agree with Josh, unless England is going to play like that, why would he come back? Josh, what have you worked? Getting on the phone to Andy Carroll. <laughs> Are we at that stage yet? Have we, have we hit the panel I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there are other options than Andy Carroll, who, at the point of signing him, Steve Bruce said, Well, he's just started running. <laughs> Which what I an achievement. A, a very strange thing to, to point out upon signing a striker. Um, what about England's goalkeeper, though? I know we're not necessarily oh. talking about the England team altogether, but mm. while we're talking about strikers, Pickford has had a dreadful season, I think. He was, you mentioned that goal, uh, Florian Lejeune's second goal. He was frantic in goal. And it was Martin Kieran who said the match. He was like a volleyball player. He was just diving around all over the place without really knowing and where he the was, ball was. He was a good two, three yards behind the line when he did eventually make the save that he was throwing himself around trying to make. I think Dean Henderson would be a far safer choice. Perhaps Nick Pope from Burnley. He's a good goalkeeper. Yeah, Dean Henderson's second most save percentage in the league this season, which is astounding. Really. I think Pickford, a lot of people always said he had going for him is his distribution, but I think even that is starting to falter this season. But people also, just in defence of Jordan Pickford, people also forget how possibly brilliant he was at the last World Cup. You remember, everyone remembers that save against Colombia in the 90th minute, which was mm. genuinely, yeah. the way he moves his body, the way he stretches to get that ball, genuinely, that is a world-class save. Conceded from at a critical <laughs> moment, then take the penalty. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, no, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this question. I can't get inside Gareth Southgate's head, but you know it's a really big decision to have to make. And John Bickford has had a poor season, and he's got to be aware that it's not like this is a position where we're lacking. It's not like a position where we're short. Dean Henderson, Nick Pope, these guys should be and are breathing down his neck. Well, Dean Henderson, I'm just looking here. Who's Conceded 20 goals in 23 Premier League games in a Sheffield United team. That is outstanding. That that is that is international form worthy, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he's a really really good shout. I think we'll move on to one more Premier League game before we whisk off and um, towards the FA Cup, and we'll cover something at the other end of the table: Villa versus Watford, which finished 2-1 to Aston Villa. It's their first win in five games. They're up to 16th place. Ben, you got something to say? Well, it's just a Jack Greeley show at the moment, isn't it? Really, um, he's abs—I mean, he's absolutely performing wonders on the pitch. I've got no—he he must be called up to the England squad. I mean, if you've called up the sort of people they've called up in the past, let's let, let's try and think of some people who are David Nugent for a while. Joey Kevin, Barton. Kevin Davis. Exactly. <laughs> My point exactly. My point exactly. Uh, the one thing I would say, um, and I agree with that, is that the, I, th- I do think the England call-up has been sort of... This, this is part of the reason why Jack Grealish hasn't been called up already. Gareth Southgate has made it increasingly difficult for players to get called up. Mm. Players really have to earn their place in the England squad. And I think, don't get me wrong, I think Jack Grealish has. But I think we're out, as I joked about you know, David Nugent and Kevin Davis, I think we're out of that era. Um, and having said that, I think Grealish has been an amazing addition to the England squad this summer. I think he offers something really different. His socks annoy me. 
I, I, yes, I won't lie somebody to you. said that to me yesterday. Yeah, and Sox very much annoying me, but uh, he's a great player, and mm. I think um, we should seriously be looking at getting on that plane. Oh, well, not on that plane because we play a Wembley off song. <laughs> so I uh, get getting in on that coach. Playing to Wembley. Yeah, so um, Aston Villa, of course, yeah, beaten Watford, but Watford, what a revival they have had under Nigel Pearson. Just an interesting thing because it actually. He almost didn't get the job because he was on a walking holiday in the countryside <laughs> and the phone signal wasn't working. It was only the insistence of the Pozos who called him when he got back home to Sheffield that he actually took the job. Um, but he seems to have had an amazing influence. He was setting up individual meetings with the players, putting an arm around the shoulder. And um, He's got Craig Shakespeare with him, of course. AB, how do you assess Watford? Yeah, well, I think the big positive that's come under Nigel Pearson's manager is the fact that he's come into this job and he just seems so much calmer than he has done in previous jobs than at Leicester. You know, everyone remembers that ostrich run, the sorrow ostrich run, and you know, him going sort of nuts on the touchline. Um, but since he's come to Watford, and I remember that that first game that he had in charge against the other world, and they lost, and actually he was from a place like the French Conference, and, and he was okay with it. I think he's really brought a serenity to that Watford side who were panicking, they went free for all. He was their third manager of the season. But overall, I think, he, I think he's done magnificently. i tell you why he's done magnificently, in my opinion, compared to the Leicester job, is that he had absolutely no pressure on him at all. Because, they, yes, they were, tw- they were 20th in the league. They looked like they were goners. He could do absolutely anything and he would not be blamed for their lack of their season. He's gone in there with absolutely no pressure on his shoulders. The ability to express his playing style that he wants to play. And it's working under Watford. He's not having to be forced into a into playing defensive football in the sense that he's he's 17th, 17th, 15th. He's got people on his coattails. That he came in with no pressure, and that is why I think he's done so well. Is a, is that he has had the freedom. The Pozos have realised that they that they need to give the manager the freedom. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what will happen is they just will keep having to rotate their managers around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we'll move away from the Premier League now to the upcoming FA Cup, the fourth round returns of our favourite competition where domestic heroes have been made. We're thinking of Stanley Matthews in the 1953 final for Blackpool. We're thinking of Wayne Shaw gobbling his pie in the fifth round of the FA Cup two years ago. (laughs) Uh, Are there any standout ties that you guys want to mention? Oxford versus Newcastle United. And I'm saying this because, not because I'm biased, but because it, it... poses a real chance of Newcastle to progress to the fifth round of the FA Cup for the first time in Mike Ashley's ownership, which I think would be fantastic. Not to mention Newcastle also lost to Oxford United in the FA Cup last season. So it's a very, very good chance to, one, produce an upset, and two, produce something that Newcastle fans have not seen for quite some time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. I'm getting on St. James's Park for the first time in my life um, on Saturday. And I'm looking forward to a Florian Le- uh, Lejeune hat-trick. But it'll be interesting to see how they cope defensively in Newcastle because obviously United are the top scorers in League One. Yeah. Now, I know it's League One and we're talking about a premiership side and obviously the golf in class and quality. But goals are goals. If they... If they're dangerous from set pieces, which they have been this season, then they could pose Newcastle a real problem if Newcastle don't turn up. Yeah, Carl Robinson has manufactured an amazing side there. Also, um, AB, sorry, you want to say something? Yeah, sorry, just a side yeah. note about Carl Robinson. I believe mm. he was in the running for the Malaga job a couple of weeks really? ago. Really? A very left-field choice. Malaga are 
club currently in free fall, they're being run into the ground, obviously their manager has left, um, and they were considering Carl Robinson, but I think, um, quite rightfully, he stayed at, uh, <laughs> stayed at Oxford. Does he speak Spanish? Don't think so, not as far as I'm aware. So. <laughs> An interesting experiment. Um, also, Southampton playing Spurs, Southampton have been resurgent recently, the fourth best record since they lost 9-0 on that fateful day to Leicester. It's going to be a really interesting tie with a slightly stagnant Tottenham who maybe haven't had the start on the Marino that they wanted. Well, yeah, we have to remember that Southampton beat Spurs not so long ago and was a very fantastic finish. Now, I just want to give the entire Southampton board a lot of credit because it's very easy, especially after losing 9-0 at home, to press to push the padding button, as a lot of clubs would have done, and sack your manager and get a firefighter in to try and keep you up. But no, Southampton have let Ralph Parsons just coach his way out of this problem. Yeah. He has done. They're, they're in ninth place now. And he's done fantastically. And, you know, I think they'll give Tottenham a really, really good year because Tottenham were not good against Norwich um, last night. They were they were poor. I thought at times they were lucky to get away with a win. Um, and so I think that makes for a really interesting time. Mm. Of course, the FA Cup is the home of shocks. The competition that I don't personally find is, is the Copa del Rey, where it seems like a lot of sides, um, you know, who are meant to progress do. But we almost had some this weekend with Barcelona being um, down to Ibiza, only for Griezmann to save them with two goals. Absolutely gutting stuff. It would have been amazing for a third division side, AB. Yeah, well, I think part of the reason this is so great is because the Spanish FA have just reformed the Copa del Rey to make it easier mm. for lower division sides to cause upsets. Uh, ties no longer go to a replay, it's over one leg. So if Ibiza had held that 1-0 lead, which obviously they didn't, they, they would have gone through. Um, I think this game um, really showed the flaws that have been highlighted and the criticisms that have been highlighted in Keke Setien, the new Barcelona manager's style of football um, in, in recent seasons, particularly when he was at Betis, because he's very much the Cruyffian school of football, he loves to dominate possession, he loves to have the ball as much as a, a means to defend as to, uh, as to attack. It crosses home squared. If, you're, if, if you have the ball, the opposition can't score. But where that falls down is there is quite often with this size, and I'm watching the real with this side of there, there is quite often a lack of penetration. There's, mm. a, there's a lack of cutting edge, and we saw it against Granada. Um, on Sunday, it was his first league game where it took 76 minutes. Barca had 86.2% possession and it took them 76 minutes and a Lionel Messi goal to break that deadlock. It was actually the third highest possession ever in La Liga history, um, both previously set by Barcelona, uh, Montan de Guardiola and Montan de Guardiola. And really, I, I think back to, to his time at Betis and there are two games that really stand out to me, both against Levante, both of which Betis had over 75% possession and they lost 3-0 and 4-0 respectively. So it's just going to be a question of whether he can find that cutting edge of Barcelona. And that's what we saw against Ibiza, who came very, very close to upsetting them. Um, mm. And I think it's going to be very interesting going forward. Another another upset, potentially, that, that was was stopped, was only stopped in penalties. Uh, Elche took Atletico Bilbao, or, sorry, Athletic Bilbao, all the way to the shootouts and... I think um, you've got to give you've got to give credit where credit's due, and uh, while the Spanish FA have, have come under a lot of criticism for, for several different reasons, I do I do like the the restructuring of the mm. of the Copa that they've that they've brought in, and I think as much as we can do to help lower division football clubs is is better in these kind of competitions because 
it's these competitions that are really like the lifeblood of, of the game. The FA Cup's the oldest competition in the world. And it, it's it's things like this that that produce these really special moments in football. But so. it's not just that financially for a lot of clubs. If you look at the uh, Oxford United-Newcastle game, say that goes to a, uh, a replay, that is a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> for Oxford United, yeah. because that'll be on TV. They're already going to make a lot of money because they're going away mm. and they can sell tickets, more tickets than they usually do. 10% of the stadium, isn't it? For FA Cup yes, yeah. it is. So that extra allocation there. So financially for the clubs, those clubs, it's absolutely massive, especially as we've got the January transfer window coming in. That sort of money, 250, 500 grand, you could, uh, they potentially will earn from just from TV rights. Mm. Could bring them in a striker, which they don't need, but they definitely need some central defenders. Their defence is lacking, which shows why they're they're not as highly ranked in table as they should be, considering they are the top goal scorers. I think what's really interesting with low division football in Spain at the moment is the way that the Spanish FA are financing it. Now, there's been this huge debate in the last couple of weeks in Spain over the Spanish Super Cup and the way that it's moved to Saudi Arabia. The entire Spanish Super Cup was played in Jeddah. It also wasn't really a Super Cup. It was a cup competition from four sides and then a semi-final and a final. The, um, <laughs> so, so, so you had Valencia, the winners of the last year's Copa del Rey, Barcelona, the league winners. You had, um, and then you also had uh, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid play. And the final was actually between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid. So neither the Copa del Rey winners <laughs> nor, nor uh, the La Liga champions played um, <laughs> played in the in, in the um, Spanish Super Cup final. But the counter argument to that is all that money that's come out of making it a four team competition in Jeddah is going towards Spanish lower division clubs. Mm. It's helped finance nine different football clubs in the Spanish lower division. So it's a really interesting debate to have about whether this sort of um, globalization, over globalization of football, this sports washing by the Saudi regime, is in fact justifiable. In, the way, in, in, in terms of where that lucrative money goes. Sport goes where money goes. You talk about boxing and the fact that they've appropriated the YouTube culture to try and get a different generation into the, into the sport and then bringing the pay-per-view down for, for that particular event. Um, the the um, Joshua fight, which was in Saudi Arabia, is... Ridiculous. Formula One, another one that's very money orientated. Formula One's what a sport massively sports washes. They hold races in Azerbaijan, Russia. Um, they want to hold a race in Saudi Arabia. They hold it in Dubai. <laughs> it's why can't football do that if it's going to make money? I don't see. I understand the ethical grounds not doing it, but if it's going to, like AB said, help fund lower league clubs and keep them surviving and avoid situations like we have. With um, Barry, Barry going, a Bolton going into administration. If they're going to help clubs like that, then sometimes yeah. you've got to mix, you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette. I, I think it's more, yeah, sorry. The, yeah. the one point that I, have, that I have on that is if we, if we look back to last year's Europa League final being played in Azerbaijan, uh, the, the fallout because of the fact that it was two English teams playing there was ridiculous and the fact that people were petitioning for it to be played at Wembley. I, I don't think it's the direction that football should necessarily go in. I have to agree. I think football, football puts it so blind a little bit when it takes, takes it away from the fans and creates situations where the fans are unable to go. I think there's also a little bit of an ethical issue, specifically in taking a place like Saudi Arabia, which has a terrible human rights record in terms of women and 
you know, gay rights or whatever, the list goes on. So I think there's a little bit mm. of an ethical issue there. And, uh, um, and I think that's something that should be considered more than a current is what I'm Yeah. Um, all I will add is that I think it is maybe especially beneficial for Spain because the lower leagues, there's hardly any money in them and it's so hard to get out of them. I know this because I'm football manager 2017. <laughs> I could win the league and still not get promoted because they had to go through some frustrating playoffs and get beat by the team that finished fourth. So um, absolutely terrible. We'll move on now to the Bundesliga title race. How incredible it is. Mönchengladbach now third place they had been first for a lot of the season. Marco Rose doing an amazing job there. But it is Julian Nagelsmann's Leipzig who are currently top on 40 points, four points ahead of Bayern Munich, AB. Well, yeah, the remarkable statistic for RB Leipzig does now they've now scored three goals or more after their nine last games. Wow. It is quite incredible. They've scored, I think, 37 goals uh, in their last nine games. Um, they're absolutely fantastic. Sorry. If you watch them play, they have done a couple of times this season. They are so good on the ball. They're um, they've got Dayo Abdukane at centre back, who is you know um, a machine. He is a he's a one man army really, um, and you know they're, they're completely in first place out of merit. I know a lot of other Bundesliga clubs have struggled with Bayern Munich, have Dortmund, um, losing father has been under a lot of pressure, but RB Leipzig have done absolutely fantastic yeah. this season. Um, they've got a really good squad. Timo Werner. Um, has now, I believe, overtaken Rob Lewandowski as the top, uh, as the leading goal scorer uh, in, in the Bundesliga. He's fantastic. He's been linked with Liverpool. Um, and I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't be considering Leipzig as a genuine, well, they've got to the top of the league, but as a, as a genuine force now. In, in Europe. In, no, probably wouldn't go that far yet. Okay. But certainly in the Bundesliga, although I think that start against Spurs um, in the um, in last season in the Champions League, I think that's going to be very tasty. Uh, yes, I, I think it's going to be very tasty uh, for, for a different reason to perhaps AB things, because RB Leipzig, whilst they are called Rosenball Sport Leipzig, are also heavily influenced by Red Bull with a lot of their money. Um, and Tottenham Hotspur's official energy drink partner is Monster <laughs> Energy, and so it is. It is the European energy drink derby of Tottenham versus Leipzig, and I, I feel like that could be a really interesting one to go by on on the sponsorship side as well. Ben, I'm still not convinced by Leipzig, and I know. You're probably saying I'm a naysayer and all that, but at the end of the day, Bayern Munich are only four points off first place. That's absolutely nothing. I mean, in your program notes, Luke, Luke, you described the stranglehold in the Bundesliga looking like it was going to be dropped, looking like it was going to be destroyed. I still think Bayern Munich, with their strength and depth, are still going to walk away with the Bundesliga title. They've, their form has been impeccable over the last four games, four wins and four. And I think Leipzig are going to lose quite a few of their players in January. I'm not sure that's true based on the fact that simply top of the league, I think players will just stay at the end of the season and try and try and try and win the league and I'll be There's a lot of interest from Arsenal, I think, for Deo Gumacano. But I, yeah, that that'll be one that'll probably materialise over summer. What I do want to what I do want to highlight is the fact that Dortmund could have a, a resurgence um, with the with the signing of Erling Haaland, a player mm-hmm. that I'm very, very fond of. Uh, from my own experience with him on football manager, like <laughs> like you said, with the with the struggles in Spain, but but for him to come on and influence the game the way that he did on his debut, he he is a goal scorer that has scored many goals this season and will continue to score goals for Dortmund. 
in a team that has lacked goals at points this season. Mm. Only lost three games. In fact, I think Holland has signed as a as a sort of signal from from the board saying, "Look, this is probably as good a chance as winning the Bundesliga we're going to get." Bayern have sacked their manager mid-season. I'd be like to go top of the league. Um, so we're going to twist your arm a little bit. We're going to give you the resources that you need to win the league, and now it's up to you to deliver it. And um, you know, it started okay because Holland bailed them out, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's amazingly open-ended because, of course, um, Bayern Munich got rid of Nico Kovac, and since then they've won nine of their eleven games under Hans Dieter Flick. Um, seven titles in a row. It's just, you know, it's absolutely incredible, and it'll be amazing, you know, really interesting to see if, if anybody can break that monopoly. Can I just add one very quick, funny little story that's yes. Germany, uh, German football this uh, this weekend? Um, Jürgen Klinsmann, now, in, yes, yes, now in charge of Hertha Berlin, was almost uh, not allowed to sit on the touchline of Hertha Berlin's game against Bayern Munich because uh, he's obviously got his coaching badges, um, but you need to refresh them now and again. And he he had refreshed them, but he'd actually left the physical copy of the coaching badge in his California home, where he'd gone over the winter break. And so this, well, there, was, there was this big drama about whether he could get the license and whether he was going to be allowed to sit on the touchline. And I think he just about in the end managed to put together some necessary paperwork so to sit on the touchline, only to watch Hertha lose four 0 to Bayern. <laughs> so it wasn't really worth it. Um, but yeah, don't forget your coaching license in your California home um, is a lesson to all football managers. Yeah, I think. Remember that, everybody. Yeah. Um, Moving on to the transfer window, because that is what we are in at the moment. It is January, and everyone's had their Christmas presents, and now some beleaguered football managers are hoping for some Christmas presents as well. But Antonio Conte into Milan, I think it's fair we can start there, because, of course, they're challenging right at the top end of Serie A, and they're making some incredible signs at the moment. They've been busy boys, haven't they? Yeah, very busy. Very busy indeed. I mean, it's interesting. They're signing a mixture of experience and youth. But it's also interesting that who they're going in for, the likes of Euro potentially, um, which is kind of weird considering they've got um, Lukaku scoring great goals. Yeah, well, Antonio Conte all season has been a classic Antonio Conte, sort of been grumbling, growling about having a lack of players and like a trample over only ever one uh, injury away from a crisis. Oh, I need more players. And the board has decided to back him. Um, I think he felt, felt there was a, a lack of strength and depth in the squad. They've started the season fantastically, albeit they've only won one of their first three games in, in 2020. They drew with Lecce on the weekend, so the event section now have a full-point lead over them. But they, especially in the wing-back position, we've seen them sign Ashley Young, and now just lost out of some Victor Moses on loan um, from Chelsea. Um, they've brought in um, Valentin Lazaro from, uh, from Hertha Berlin at the start of the season, and he... Never really took off the stop and start sort of season. Yeah, same with Christian Baraghi, he's not really taken off. So that position, given the interplay through 5 2 and the play through 5 2 all season, is one where they've been lacking slightly. So they brought Ashley Young, who I think Conte is a player who feels he can do a job. He can sort of, he's solid enough to see them out until the end of the season at the very least. So, and you said, and same with Victor Moses. That's very interesting. Giroud is, I think, being, uh, I think there's still a little bit of a, from what I understand, a little bit of a monetary difference between Chelsea and and into Milan, but he was being brought in his cover from Melo Lukaku and Latore Martinez, um, given that Alexis Sanchez has had his injury problems since signing. But the joke about Alexis Sanchez, I don't know if you guys have heard this, Manchester United sent him out on, they had no loan fee, they had, they were paying all his wages, and they had no chance to recall him from his loan if he went, 
if he didn't play. I mean, that is absolutely abysmal business by just another example of Ed Woodward being an absolute twit when it comes to transfers. <laughs> Can I just add to that? Um, I think even more criminal is the fact they sold Romelu Lukaku. Yes. Um, who has been absolutely inspirational for, for Inter Milan this season. And so they've actually got rid of two attacking players and as Ben points out, they've now got a striker crisis. <laughs> but, I mean, people accu- accuse Lukaku of being fat-track bully, scoring su- score, no, hate in the past. Yeah. But he... you so- Even if you do accuse him of that, you have to take into account Manchester United, when they play against the big teams, tend to do okay. It's when they're playing against those smaller sides, when they need somebody to score those goals, those, those po- poacher goals, those not very nice goals to look at, the ones that aren't going to appear on your highlight reel. He's that man, to a certain extent, although I think his game has improved substantially un- under Conte, that he's now a f- fully-fledged superstar. But why did they let him go? I completely agree with AB. Inter Milan seems to be on a one-team mission to sign everybody in Europe. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still waiting for my offer from them. But you mentioned Ed Woodward. One potentially good piece of business that Man United could do is bringing in Bruno Fernandes, who's been awesome the past 18 months. Uh, can I just say that? I'm just very proud of your sources. Twitter are saying clubs are still more support on that. So, yeah. yeah Apparently so. Sporting wants £70 million. Pounds. 80, United, they want it now. Decent enough player, but it's not going to solve the problems of Manchester United. And yet they're willing to at least con- um, entertain the possibility of, of spending maybe 70 or million on does he not solve the goal from midfield problem that they have so much with the likes of the No, I don't agree. I don't think he does. All right, fair enough. Um, are there any other signings that have stuck out to you particularly? Andrew Lazaro is potentially on his way to Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, um, they've agreed a, a loan deal with Inter Milan, Newcastle United, um, as, as we believe. And uh, the player is, is flying over to, to Tyneside in the next couple of days to hold face-to-face talks with the club. And I find it very interesting that we're going for another right-sided uh, wing-back or, or midfielder uh, when we have a current left-back injury crisis with Jethro Willems out for the rest of the season, Paul Dummer out for the rest of the season, Matt Ritchie being our only fit left wing-back at the moment, coming back from a long-term injury. Um, so I really do feel like another left-back's needed. Uh, whilst we have been a little bit lacking in, in the in the right wing-back department. Obviously, Yedlin is a very athletic wing-back, um, not the best defensively. Mankio, very good defensively, not too good going forward. So we need somebody who will merge those two. Um, the wing-backs have been quite instrumental in kind of setting off these counter-attacks in the, in the system that Bruce has employed. Um, that's why Willems has been so influential this season with the goals and assists that he's popped up with. But I feel like... At, at the moment, maybe a right back wouldn't be the wouldn't be the signing that I'd go for. Whether he intends to play Lazaro further up the pitch and to, to give a little bit of time to to rotate the the wingers of Almiron and San Maximan, give them a bit of rest and time, that remains to be seen. But mm. but Newcastle need another left another left back and they need another striker, I think in my opinion, just to, to come in and and to unsettle the players that are currently there and also offer us another option because Andy Carroll's currently injured, Dwight Gale's injured, uh, we've got Joel Linton playing up front. We didn't have a striker on the bench against Everton, uh, such as our injury crisis has been over yeah. the Christmas period. So Newcastle do need reinforcements. And another transfer to talk about before we move on to our exciting games at the end of the show. We've got some crackers coming up there. Jude <laughs> Bellingham. 
16-year-old at Birmingham, £30 million submitted by Manchester United. Jermaine Pennant has weighed in on the debate and said that he shouldn't go. £30 million is a huge price tag to, to put on a, a 16-year-old. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, for, from all the all intents and purposes, he's very, very talented. It's just a question of whether the current Manchester United set-up, he's going to fulfil his potential because there isn't that crop of senior players like there was you know, in 1992 mm. to you know, help him, to guide him. But it'd be interesting to see whether this is a deal that sends him back to Birmingham for the remainder of the season. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's probably the most sensible thing to do rather than to, to chuck him into the Manchester United team. That's quite a, a, a difficult place to be at, at parts and times this season. But guys, let's talk about the transfer fee. I mean, I'm really not surprised. £30 million for a teenager. Now, the reason why I say I'm not surprised is because, in my opinion, footballers are not reaching their peak younger, but they're getting to a great level when they're younger. The likes of Yadon Sancho, 19 years of age, reaching, becoming an England player and a starting England player. I think people have cottoned on to the fact there are these youngsters out there. If you give them the chance... They could do some special things for your club. And £30 million could be a snip in the in the market for a player like Jude Bellingham. Now, they reckon that he's a special talent. He's played 25 matches in the Championship this season. Now, that is an incredible amount of matches for a 16-year-old to play. He can obviously cope with the pressure. I mean, Birmingham is a very hostile environment to play. It's not the nicest stadium to play at, even as a home player. Mm. So... I know he's been urged to turn down the Manchester United transfer, but you've got to take two things into account. Number one, he might not he, he might not ever get the chance to join probably the biggest club in the world in Manchester United. And number two, he might not turn out to be great. This might be his only bumper contract. We we all think just because he's they're valuing him at thirty million, he's going to be the next next Yadon Sancho. He might turn out to be a flop. Absolutely. He may as well just, in my opinion, take the money. I know. <laughs> yeah. You got to think about you got to think about his long term future. You, people forget that about footballers; yeah. they forget about that they've got lives outside football. And in terms of Birmingham City as well, thirty million pounds is a huge amount for them, and that could really help them to push on towards the playoffs next yeah. season. And he's been described as uh, the best player on the planet in his at his wow. age um, by I can't quite remember who. Who said it? But Pep Quartet has, has been heaping praise on him recently, the, the Birmingham City manager. And to be honest, I, I agree with Ben in the sense that it, it might be his only chance to get a big, to get a move to a big club. Just the fact of him at this young age being exposed to such an incredible training facility as that at Manchester United and being mixed in with with the first team squad at Man United, playing at that high level. You'll probably get a few few games here and there as a sub, maybe. Mm. They'll definitely be playing for the reserve squad. And it, it could be a very true piece of business by Manchester United. If he's been t- touted as the best player in the world at his age now, um, he made his England under-15 debut at the age of 13. So he's, he's a player that's obviously very talented at football and very technically gifted. You know, why not take why not take a punt? Mm. But I mean, the transfer fee is... A big weight to put on his shoulders at this age, though. That's my only concern. He could really thrive at the United Tower with Solskjaer in charge, where some of their best players this season have been the youthful players. Right, it is time for the fun and games. You can feel the tension in the room. Maybe there's one or two sweaty armpits. 
defend the indefensible is what we call it. And our three warriors who were all sitting very nervously now, Ben's eyes fixed on his computer screen as if that's going to help him. Our three warriors will have the task of defending something that can't sensibly be justified. And there will be a winner who doesn't get a prize apart from the pride of winning. There are six statements. Each of them will tackle one. Ben, we're going to start with you. And if you would like to pick a number from one to six. Four, please. You pick number four. Oh, I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Messi couldn't do it on a cold, rainy Tuesday night in Stoke. Well, of course Lionel Messi couldn't do it on a cold, rainy night in Stoke. He's new to Argentina, the hot summers over there, the beaches. He's used to the Spanish Barcelona lifestyle where the temperatures, believe me, I've been there. can get up to 30 degrees. It's very nice on your skin. But he couldn't do it on a rainy day in Stoke. He'd struggle. The guy's, the guy's too small. He'd be, he'd be falling over. He'd be sliding all over the place. He just couldn't do it. You only have to look at his stats when he plays in England. Believe me, they're not great. He lost to the Arsenal. Let's put it like that. He, Lionel Messi could not do it on a rainy day in Stoke. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Ben. Very well done. Um, I think it's my least favourite thing that people say in football, that he couldn't do it. And I, I can't see the Stoke defenders stopping him. But after that, you know, very convincing. And then moving across to the middle with AB. I'll get to number one. Number one, oh. Referees ought to be replaced by a democratic voting system where the fans in the ground decide every decision. Well, Luke, I couldn't agree more. Football is all about the fans and we've got to give power back to the fans. That how much more democratic can you get by giving them the final and say they are the ones who have paid their tickets, of course, to come to the football and so do they not deserve a say in the outcome. It would encourage fans to go and fill out the stadium knowing that their vote actually matters all until... Uh, you know, we have a second vote because apparently there wasn't uh, a, a clear consensus on the first one. Um, apparently a 2% majority isn't enough, but you know, it's okay. Um, so you encourage fan attendances up, give the fans back for their support by, uh, by giving them the final say on the football pitch. You sound just like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't see yourself also doing the fun fist thing. Yeah, well, politicians yeah. do also have a say that, yeah. And Josh, so we've already had number one, we've already had number four. You can't take them and then revise theirs, of course. You have to. I will take my my local hero and legend, Paul Dummett's number, number three. Oh, number three. Oh, well, this is an interesting one for you. Liverpool could sack Jurgen Klopp on the spot and install Joshua Nicholas manager for at least the next ten years. Well, of course I should be the manager of Liverpool Football Club. Who better than me to build on Jurgen Klopp's legacy? I employ a tactical style of football, which is very possession-based. It will be something that the players will be interested in and they will pick it up very easily. Liverpool have the core of a squad that can win the next three league titles at least. They have runs in the Champions League, that we can build on and we can go back to back. We can level the amazing feat of the name of the Real Madrid manager that I've forgotten, but he's a very good player. He's Zinedine Zidane. Thank you, A.B. And honestly, who better than me to build on that? As you can see, I'm, I'm a northern man. <laughs> I, I understand the fact that football is a working man's game. I have lost 
yeah, you're overrunning player, team, mate. so I know how to lose graciously and inspire a team. No extra points awarded for running three times over. <laughs> no, very well done. I, I can't decide. I think we're going to have to do another round with the remaining statements. Oh, God. I've made our way up for this. So what have we had so far? We've had four, we've had three, and we've had one. So that means, Ben, you have the remaining numbers of two. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can I not choose first? Um, do you want to? Because that means I'll be left with the one I know one wants. All oh, right. No, yeah, so no, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I, I what, agree. What, what yeah. Options? Um, so you have number two, number five, or number six. I'll I'll just I'll I'll um I'll go with Genie uh, Wijnaldum's number number five. Okay, there should be no such thing as a foul in football. Fans want a gruesome bloodbath, not a civilized pageant. When you look back in history and you see the coliseums filled with people baying for blood, looking to the emperor, who in my case would be Steve Bruce, to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down as to whether Luis Suarez's head is booted clean off by Matt Ritchie, who thinks it's a corner flag, it will bring back the crowds in huge fashion. People like a protest, people like gathering, and mob mentality, whilst it has its horrific nature, will bring passion like we've never seen before to the football game. Matt Ritchie would instantly become the best player in the world, and I think for that reason alone, we should bring the no-foul rule. Very, very nice. Very well done. Lovely link with the ancient game. So, AB, back to you again. I'll pick number two. Number two. The Premier League schedule should be condensed, with all 38 games being played in the month of January. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, absolutely. January can be a very dour month for people. Christmas is finished, New Year celebrations finished. So what better way than to overload the British population with football? Um, you know, it's a very cold time of year. And I, it, would, it would suit teams in the sense that there would be no teams who perhaps play better in the summer or winter, because it's all in January. In fact, in Greenland, they play their entire football season in the space of a week. So we should take the Greenland model. And it works fine for them. You never hear problems coming out of Greenland football. So, you know, take the Greenland model and um, and then instill it in the Premier League. Amazing. I love that. God, I've got a lot to beat, haven't I? You have. Um, yeah, I, gonna... I will safely say that, Josh, you are not winning against AB. I'm very sorry to announce that. <laughs> I thought, I thought the visceral imagery of Matt Ritchie lobbing Luis Suarez's head across the pitch like a corner flag would be enough to win me it. I think the political rhetoric of AB just about <laughs> an outstanding performance from you, but not outstanding enough. Ben, you could still win the title of the inaugural Defend the Indefensible Games. You have one number to pick from. That's number six. What number was would you pick, like? I was going to pick number six anyway. Oh, very nice. Well... Um, he's, just, he's just saying that to me. No, I was actually, I was actually going to pick that number. Short, it's sweet, and it's indefensible. Goalkeepers should not be a thing. Well, of course, <laughs> go- well, of course, goalkeepers should not be a thing. They're not really proper players. They're basically rugby players, aren't they? They handle the ball with their hands. They can't kick it. I mean, if you look at the, look at Pedersen, I mean, he tries to kick it out. Okay, it's okay sometimes, but let's be honest, it can't really do it. They're basically. Like, they're basically not really football players. They say play it with your feet. They play it with their hands. I don't get the logic of it. I really don't. So for that reason, purely based on logic, 
Goalkeepers should not be a thing. <laughs> it's not called goal football. It's called Keep football. Thank you. Can we stop before it's possible? The X Factor winning falsetto performance hitting all the high notes. Ben Sharp is the winner. <laughs> but there is still a chance because we have one final very short game, which is um, very aptly named. <laughs> Two lies and one truth. There is one truth that I'm about to tell and two lies, and you have to guess which one's which. So are you ready? I'll focus. Number one. There is a football club in France where the fans use an app to pick the team. Number two. Victor Inichibi's big brother went down a slightly different path in life and is actually an astronaut at NASA. <laughs> <laughs> We know that's false, but why did he make Victor immediately at all? Why not? <laughs> and number three. The Premier League in Chad was founded in 1988, but has only ever been won by one team, Renaissance FC. In, sorry, Premier League in Chad? Yeah, founded in 1988, but there's only ever been one team that has won it, and that's Renaissance FC. I know there is a team that picked... There is a uh, team yeah, that, as well. that picks... I don't know if it's in France, but I'm going to go with that one. Yep. That's my truth. So I'm supposed to know about African football. I was writing an essay on why on, 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 on Liberian football, but I've never heard of this Chad Premier League. You know, I think that's false. I think I think it made that old even even since then we gave them the last truth. So it's two two of them are lies and one of them is the truth. Yes. Well the thing is there is there is some truth in, in the whole football of space thing because Sunderland signed Stefan Schwartz and back in um nineteen ninety-eight uh, for a record four million pounds uh, mm. at the time, and they put a space clause in his contract saying Ooh. that he would be sacked from the club if he ever travelled to space. Worth it, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was worth it. So, with and each should be having the link to Sunderland as well, maybe. It's uh, <laughs> just bizarre, isn't it? Um, I think the truth is the football club where the fans choose the players via app because I think I remember reading some article about it. On the BBC. Well, you've all been sheep and some people might say, you know, it's not an amazing idea to become a sheep. However, in this situation, you are all correct. Congratulations, you're all winners. Everybody's very happy. Um, I tested it out on a few people and none of them got it. So, yeah, very impressive. Um, Avant-garde Carnes play in the fourth tier of French football. It's quality pronunciation. Yeah, I'm being serious. <laughs> and they, they do have a manager, but all the substitutions, all the lineups are picked by the fans on the sideline. So, yeah, incredible. Um, the Chad Premier League, Renaissance FC have seven titles. They don't quite have the domination since 1988, however. And I think that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you very much for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed the first episode of Gone Too Far. It's been a jam-packed episode. Have we enjoyed it, guys? Yes, we have. We certainly have. Hopefully you'll join us in the near future. But for now, we've been Ben Sharp, Josh Nickel, Ari Man Banerjee, and I've been Luke Power. Thank you very much. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.